So we are going to be in Romans chapter 7 today, um, and as a precursor for getting to Romans chapter 7, I just wanted to real quick go through um, the outline of Romans. I know that we've been in Romans a while, and sometimes it gets, we get a little lost where we're at in the midst of it, and so just to, just to kind of know, there are five S's that make Romans pretty easy to understand, understand the outline of what Paul is doing, okay? So Paul start, starts Romans by talking about sin. Right. Um, and also, just just as a note, this sermon will be a really good one to take notes because I'm going to fly like we are going to go and there's going to be a lot of stuff to, to write down. and It's going to be good to to uh, to process through. Um, so Paul starts talking about in, in chapter one, verse 18, talks about sin. He says that all of us are trapped underneath sin. He says, listen, it doesn't matter if you're not a Christian. It doesn't matter if you're far from God. It doesn't matter if you are a Gentile, as he says, and you're not a Jew, but you know the law of God. And it doesn't matter if you're a Jewish person who has been raised up understanding the law of God. He says, all of us have the same problem, sin. None of us can escape it. And, and he makes some conclusions in chapter 3. He says, listen, no one is good. No, not one. No one sees God. No, not even one. And so Paul makes some pretty drastic conclusion saying, listen, like all of us are separated from God. No one can come near to him. No one even seeks him. And then he switches. So we deal with sin in the first part of Romans. He switches and he comes and he starts talking about salvation, right? So the second S is salvation, sin, salvation. And he says, listen, the only way that you're saved is by faith. There's no other way. There's no good work you can do. There's no amount of um, obedience that you can give God that he's going to look at you and say, now you've earned my love. You've earned adoption. It's only by faith. And so Paul lays out this whole kind of long area in chapter 4 where he starts talking about Abraham. And, he, and he, he thinks of faith, he thinks of Abraham. And he says, let's look at Abraham. Abraham demonstrated that you, are, you stand before God as right. You stand before God as loved and as approved only by faith. And he says, look at Abraham. He says that we are either in Adam or we are in Jesus. You can't be both. You're either in Adam or you're in Jesus. There's no, either, there's no both and, it's either or. And so he talks about this idea of salvation. We come, and what Pastor Colin dealt with last week is sanctification, right? So we have sin, salvation, sanctification. And sanctification starts in chapter 6. And he starts talking about how is it that we are made holy, right? Sanctification means how is it that we're actually practically made more like Jesus? And so he dealt first with, like, our legal standing before God, that we can be approved as innocent. We can be looked at as righteous. And now he says, now how do you actually become righteous? Right? You're not, you were declared righteous. Now, how does that actually take root and how do you actually live righteously? How do you have a righteous life? And so he's talking about sanctification. And Pastor Colin dealt last week, um, last couple weeks with chapter six. And chapter six of Romans is all about being released from sin. Sin is this tyrant. It's this king that sits on a throne. And what the passage in chapter six talks about is that Christ has come and he has dethroned the king of sin. He has taken sin off of its throne so it no longer has dominion over us, right? But yet there still is a choice. There still is a fight. There still is a battle. And so we approach chapter 7 today understanding and being in process of that. How do we be made holy? How do we practically look like Jesus? And in chapter 7, Paul deals with the law. Right, The law is used 35 times in, from chapter 7, verse 1, all the way to chapter 8, verse 4. And so the law is all over the place. In the first 14 verses, it's used in every single verse. And so as I was reading this this week, um, maybe I'm not alone, but sometimes I read it and I think, man, how does this apply to us? You know, I think about like Paul's talking to a bunch of first century Christians, some of a decent amount of whom were Jewish, 
And they would have been used to hearing the law or being talked about the law. And the Gentiles at that time would have known the law very well as well, you know, also. But we approach this and we kind of think about, how is this relevant for me? You know, what does the law have anything to do with me? You know, like I am a 21st century American. Like I am, you know, 2,000 years removed from Judaism. And the whole idea of like the Old Testament law and the law of Moses has pretty far removed from us. You know, like how does this have any relevance to us? Because Paul's whole argument here deals with the law. And as I thought, like, one of the things that began helping me to understand is that it doesn't, it's not just Moses and the old covenant law, but it's the methodology of the law. It's how the law operated that Paul's talking about here, right? Because in the Old Testament with Moses' law, Paul makes this argument that we are operating in a performance mindset, Right? That before we're a Christian, or even sometimes during Christianity, we have this mindset with God that we have to perform to a standard in order to be loved. That we have to do all of these good works, or we have to be obedient before God will truly accept us, before God will truly love us or welcome us in. And Paul's dealing with this mindset because this is pervasive. Listen, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or if you come here and you're not a Christian. All of us operate in a mindset of this performance evaluation Oftentimes we think, well, God, listen, maybe it's not the Ten Commandments, but maybe it's if I go to church enough, maybe if I, if I tithe, maybe if I'm, you know, I'm nice enough to my family or my neighbors, maybe if I work hard at my job. And we have these lists that we say, well, I'm a pretty good person now, or God must love me more now. You know, and if you're not a Christian, what happens is that you elevate something else to the status of God. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's pleasure. Maybe it's whatever else it is. But it still is based on performance. See, you have to be really good or else you don't feel like you're enough. You don't feel worthy. You always feel let down. And the sad thing is that either you'll get it and you'll find out how hollow it really is or you'll never get it because of weakness, right? And then you are constantly beating yourself up. You're constantly beating yourself up because you're not good enough to get what you really thought you wanted, what you really thought would bring you that deep satisfaction, that deep longing and happiness. So I hope that you see that the law and the way it operates, this performance salvation, isn't something that was really old, but it's something that all of us, every single one of us, still struggle with on a daily basis. That we wake up often thinking, who do I have to perform? How do I have to do these things in order that I might feel or know that I'm loved, to be accepted, to be wanted? I hope you see that as we process this today that Paul's talking about that we can be changed from this, that this can be released, that we can be freed from this. So Matt is going to, um, Matt's going to read our passage for today, and then we're going to go ahead and dive in. Hear me? Oh, there we go. Cool. Romans 7, verse 1 through 25. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies... She is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. 
For while we are living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. For if it, if it, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that this lo- the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Awesome. Thank you so much, Matt. So that's... A lot and some heavy stuff. Uh, I'm really excited to dive in. Um, so as we dive in, I want to real quick break down. Um, this uh, This goes into three different ways. Um, verses 1 through 6 um, talk about our release from the law. So verses 1 through 6 talk about our release from the law. Verses 7 through 13, Paul actually defends the law. He defends the law. So we have our release from the law, defense of the law, and the last about 11 verses, verses 14 through 25, Paul talks about the weakness of the law, the weakness of the law. Okay, so we have the release, defense, and weakness of the law. So let's go ahead and dive in. The first one is the release from the law. Paul starts in verse 1, if you look there with me, and he asks a rhetorical question. He says, do you not know, brothers? And then he's about to lay something on them that obviously they didn't know. And, uh, and he starts off with an illustration. Right? He starts off with a marriage illustration. He says, don't you know that if someone is married to another, that their marriage is only intact as long as the person lives? If, if there's a death, then that marriage is broken. Then the law, the law binding their marriage is broken. The law has no more power once there's been death. And he says, 
that that is true, right? He said, so he says, likewise, he uses that. And he says, listen, that unless there is death, unless there is death, the law still remains intact. And it's what separates a legitimate marriage from an illegitimate marriage, right? If someone hasn't died and they go off and get married again, Jesus says that that's adultery, right? He says, unless there's been sexual immorality, that that's, that that's, been, that's adultery. And so he talks about that. That's, that's a hard teaching. But he says, listen, that death is what ends it. Death is what ends the law. And so he turns and he says, this illustration is used for our behalf. Because he says that likewise that we were married to the law. So he imagines us as being married to the law. And as I talked about earlier, whether we were married to the old covenant, but all of us have been born and married into this idea that our relationship with God is performance-based. From the time we're young up, it doesn't come except for through the gospel that we understand that our relationship with God isn't based on our performance, but on his. And so all of us, all of us are born into this marriage with the law into this marriage thinking that our performance is what gets us earned or what gets us accepted or what gets us loved. And he turns and he says, Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law. You've died to the law. And he goes on and he says, how? Right? Because we, we've learned that death is what ends the law, and so we must die in order to end our marriage with the law. Right? We must die in order for that relationship to be broken. Because if we haven't died, then that relationship is still intact. You know, Paul is using a metaphor here to help us understand the relationship with us and the law. And so he says that we have died, how? We have died through the body of Christ. Right? We have died through the body with Christ. He talks about that we are unified. And in, in chapter 6, he talks about the same thing. He says that we are unified with Christ, therefore we have died with Christ and we are free from sin. This idea that we are unified, that you are in Christ, is so huge for Paul. You read the book of Ephesians and it's all over the place. In him, in the beloved, he in us and we in him, that we are perfectly one. And that when we are in Christ, when we are unified with him, that his actions are considered our actions. Right? And it's through this, it's through his body that we can die. And so I want to think about, just for a second, what does it mean through? Like, what does it mean through his body? So oftentimes, you see people that, that aren't able to hear, right? They, they can't hear, and so they have hearing aids, right? And it is through their hearing aid that they now can hear, right? You see people that aren't able to walk, and so it is through the use of a wheelchair that they are able to get around, you know, you see people that aren't able to see, and it's through the use of glasses that now there is sight. And so what you see is this idea of through. It means that when there is union with, that there is access to. Okay, so I'll say that again real quick. Like, so use the example of a wheelchair, because the wheelchair off by itself doesn't do a lot of good. You know, but when you actually take somebody, you put them in a wheelchair, then they can actually utilize it. And because of their union with it, they now have access to all kinds of things that before they didn't have access to. The same thing with glasses, the same thing with hearing aid, and exactly the same thing with our relationship with Christ. Is that you see, when you have Christ and we're separated from him, when we aren't unified with him, then we don't have the privileges of all the things that come with that relationship. And, and this idea of through his body means that we are unified with him. And because we are unified with Jesus, we now have access 
to all of the things that he does. To all of the privileges and all of the areas that he accomplished, we now have access to those same areas because of him. And so he says, through his body, we have, uh, we have died. Galatians 2.20 talks about this idea. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself up for me. Colossians 2, 13 through 14 talks about the same idea. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so you have this idea that because of Jesus' death and our union with Jesus, we now gain the benefit of that death. So through him, we have freedom, right? And what's the freedom for? He says in order that, right? So he says that in verse 4, verse 4 is huge. He says, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. And so he talks about, listen, that, You've been divorced. You've died to the relationship of the law, to this idea of performing that you might belong to someone else. There's a new marriage that you are a part of now because of faith in Jesus, that you are now married to him. You are now married to Christ. And that that relationship is the defining relationship. Marriage affects everything in your life. right? For those of, the, of you that are married, I am not yet, but like those of you that are married... From what I've seen, it affects everything, right? There's not really a stone unturned in your life that it doesn't affect because the other person is there beside you all the time. And so it restricts freedom in one aspect because you're not free to date everybody that you would like. You know, like there's certain things that you can't do unilaterally any longer. You can't just make these decisions by saying, I'm going to do this. You have to consult someone now, right? You have to discuss things with someone. And so it takes away some freedom, but... It also opens up the possibility to experience freedoms that before were not possible for you to experience. Is that now you have the ability to experience a freedom of being loved with deep intimacy and having a security, right? You're able to now experience, experience, um, someone see the deepest and darkest part of you and still love you. These, all of these different kinds of freedoms that you before weren't able to experience are now open to you because of this relationship, because of this marriage, this commitment that happens. Marriage changes, it changes everything. And in a good marriage, right, in in the best of marriages, you begin to change, right? You begin to change naturally, right? Right? I mean, why? Why do you begin to change naturally? You begin to change because you love the other person. Do you see that the, the best mode and the best way to possibly change in your life isn't simply out of will force or out of your desire to get better, but it instead is because of love, because you have so fallen in love with someone that you, your greatest joy is their joy. Your greatest desire is, is for them to be pleased, for them to be and feel loved. And so you naturally begin to change in order that, because you're, you're free of yourself, right? You're free of yourself and you're caught up in something and in someone that's bigger than you and it's more important than you and that you begin to realize the necessity of dying to yourself and that death to yourself begins to change you so that you would 
love them. And you see that this is what it means for us to be in a relationship with Christ, for us to be married to him. Is it no longer are we under this performance mentality where it says, God, I have to do all these things in order that you might love me. But instead it says, you love me even in the midst of my deepest, darkest sin. Even in the midst of my greatest pain, you're there for me. And it's that kind of intimacy, it's that kind of love that changes us so that we want to love God in return. Not simply out of duty or out of obedience, although times like that will come, but because of the joy and the great delight of pleasing our lover, of pleasing the one that has died for us, of pleasing the one that gave himself up for us. And so do you see that he, we died with Christ in order that we might belong to him? He died to win us. He died to win us. And so marriage changes everything. It changes our desire. And then you see the fruit. What's the fruit of this new relationship? What's the fruit of this new marriage, right? He contrasts here, if you look in verses 5 and 7, he contrasts the difference between the fruit of God, right, that we bear. He says um, that we belong to him who's been raised from the dead in order to that, in order to that purpose clause, that we might bear fruit for God, right? So the purpose of us belonging is that in our relationship with God, we are going to bear fruit. And he, he contrasts, he says, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. And so he says, listen, the old way, it led you to death because it was never enough. You're never going to perform to where it's going to be enough. You're never going to be satisfied because you're, we're weak, we're broken people. And so while it left you wanting, while it left you desperate, while it left you up and down all the time, serving the new way, there's fruit that leads to life. And so in, uh, yeah, in, in Ephesians 5, 9, it talks about this fruit. It says, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And he commends us to try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And then in Galatians five twenty two through 23, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. He talks about the fruit of our relationship, of our marriage with Christ. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. He says, against such things, there is no law. Against those things, there is no law. And so we are either under the written code, either under the law, or we are under Christ operating the Spirit. You can't be both and. You're not, you, it's not possible to be married to two, what's Paul saying. You're either married to one or you're married to the other. You're either operating one or you're operating the other. You're either operating under your performance or you're operating in grace under Christ's leading. So we see that the law, we're divorced from it. Right, But if you're a first century Jew, you would read this, and the law wasn't necessarily the bad thing to you. I mean, you read Psalm 19, you read Psalm 119, and the law is commended this really holy, righteous, good thing. And so if you're a Jew and you read these first six verses, you're going to be pretty aggravated at Paul. Because you're saying, you're going to have a question, you're going to say, Paul, are you saying that the law is sin? Like, you're saying that the law is so bad, it leads to all these negative things. So are you saying that the law is sin, Paul? Why don't we just jettison the law? Why don't we just be gone with it then? You know, And so they're pretty upset right now at Paul because of his view of the law and, and what he said. And so Paul starts off in verse 7, and he, he, Paul's awesome because he understands his hearers. And so he knows what they're thinking. He has ideas what they're thinking. And so he poses a question that he knows that they would have been thinking. 
And he says this in verse 7. He says, what shall we say then? The law is sin? By no means. By no means. Right? So he asked this question. You know, like he asked in chapter 6. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Right? He asks this again in chapter uh, in uh, chapter 7, verse uh, 7. And he says, what shall we say? The law is sin? By no means. So he gives a short answer. And then he goes on and he gives a much longer answer. Right? He gives a much longer answer. So he starts by saying, listen, the law is not sin. The law is actually holy, righteous, and good for the purpose that God has given it. And so what I want to talk about here, we're now in the defense of the law. Paul is going to defend the law and its purpose. And so there, Paul says that I want to give you guys three approaches to the law and then three purposes of the law. Okay? Three approaches and three purposes. Okay, so we can approach the law in three different ways. First, oftentimes people approach the law as what we would call legalist, right? And what this means is that a legalist, they fear the law and therefore they abuse it, right? Those that are legalists think that their performance is what earns their standing before God. And so they're constantly insecure. They're constantly insecure because they're never doing enough. And so they then abuse the law. They make the law only about superficial things. Right? Because if I'm, if my identity is about me keeping something, then I'm going to make me being able to keep it as easy as possible. Right? I don't want anything too hard that I can't keep. And so you see that legalists make the law very surface level. It's all a bunch of things I can check off and it's a bunch of things that I can do. Because then I feel very accomplished and I feel good about myself because I've done these things. And I can say, check, done. But you see that legalists then abuse the law because their identity is found in their performance of it. They then judge other people because whenever someone else doesn't perform up to the standards of the law, they point it out because they need to feel good about themselves and their performance. And so what makes them feel good is the fact that other people aren't performing to their standard of performance. And so they get their value and their identity from pointing out other people's sin, right, in ways that don't build up, in ways that aren't helpful, in ways that aren't grace-filled. And so you see there's one approach to the law that is legalistic, right, so that they They're scared of the law, and they abuse it. Another approach to the law is called antinomianism, right? It's a big word, and what it means is it just means against the law. Antinomian, anti-law. And so these are people that say, listen, I hate the law, and I run away from it. And so you have people that, and oftentimes non-Christians, or sometimes you have Christians that take this view too, and they say, listen, the law is wrong, the law is evil, all of it's gone, and so what I do is that I hate any kind of structure, I hate any kind of law, and I say... That any time you have any kind of rule, it's it's the worst. And so anytime there's any structure, anytime there's any kind of rule or there's any kind of law, it is evil and I run away from it. And so what ends up there is you have this idea of licentiousness. Is it you're going to follow some kind of rules. You're going to follow some kind of laws. It's whose and why. Because guess what? If you're shoving all kinds of rules and laws, I guarantee you there's some rules and laws you still follow. But I'm guessing that they're the ones you choose. And so you make up these own rules and own laws that you feel are able and you feel are loose enough to where you can do them. And so these people would say, well, I hate the law of God and I'm going to shove it away because I want to do what I want to do. And so it's a self-lordship. And so it's saying, listen, I am Lord and I want to do what I want to do because I know better than God. And so you have this anti-law. And then the third approach is the gospel approach, which is it's law-fulfilling freedom. It's law-fulfilling freedom. And so this approach says, listen, I love God. I'm married to him. I can no longer sin because I don't belong to myself. I belong to another. We are in marriage together, and my greatest joy is to love him. And in that love relationship, 
the fruit of that relationship is keeping the commandments, is keeping the moral law, right? We know that the civil, you know, we don't make sacrifices anymore. You know, we don't like get on to people because they don't have a turret around their roof, you know, protecting their workers. Like there's the civil and the ceremonial parts of the law that have passed, but the moral law, the Ten Commandments, it abides. It continues because it was before Moses and it will be long after Moses. It's anchored and rooted in God's character and his very nature. It was in the very beginning you see Cain and Abel murder. God didn't need to say it. He was already ingrained it in their hearts. The commandments that he gave to Moses were just codifying what they already knew. Sin was already around. And so the Ten commandments follow through. And so the fruit of our relationship with God is that we will naturally keep these things. Not simply out of duty or fear, but out of love. We love our the one who gave himself for us, and we want to please him, right? And we know that we are loved. We know that we are accepted. We know that we are made worthy because of Jesus. And because we are filled with that joy and that love, we begin to keep the law. We begin to love our neighbors ourselves. We begin to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Those are natural products when you are in love with God. And so he talks about that. Those are the three approaches that we can have to the law. Okay, and now I want to talk real quick about three purposes. Okay, there in this passage, there are three purposes for the law. So the first purpose that we see of the law is that the law reveals sin. Okay, the law reveals sin. And you see this, Paul says, um, he says, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. And so do you see that the purpose of the law isn't to to change sin. The law doesn't come. You don't implement the law to change sin, right? Our government often thinks that that's the case. What we really need to do is make more laws, and then people will really change. And that doesn't really help, right? All it does is corral people out of fear. Laws don't change people's heart motive, at least not in a good way. And so Paul says, listen, law doesn't change. Law reveals. The law reveals our sinfulness. Because the more laws you have, the more we see our inability to keep them. And so often people that think that they're really good often have not understood what it means to be really good. And they haven't understood what the law entails. Paul says this. Paul says, listen, I once was alive. I once thought that I was alive spiritually, that I was a good moral person. But then the commandment came. Because Paul had turned the Ten Commandments into a checklist, right? Because most of the Ten Commandments, you can, in some ways, make superficial, right? I haven't created a false idol. I've kept the Sabbath. I've honored my father and mother. I haven't lied. And so you can go through the Ten Commandments and go check, 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 except when you get to covetousness. You see, all the Ten Commandments can be surface level, but covetousness at its very base is a heart motive. And so the commandment came and, and Paul realized what the law entailed. He realized that sin was essentially not being content in God. That he had, he desired other people's stuff and he wasn't content enough and sin was based and could be seen like that and he realized his sin. He realized his inability to be good. And so sin at its base, or the law at its base reveals our sin. So that's one of the purposes. The law reveals sin. A second purpose is it the law provokes sin, right? The law actually provokes our sin. And you get this up in verse um, in verse 4. Actually, sorry, um, in verse 5. So it says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law 
aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And so what happens is that the law comes, and not only does it reveal our sin, but it stirs up our sin that we might see it. Right? So it's, it's as if we're sick, but our sickness is something that lies dormant until a time at which it will kill us. And so we might see our sickness pop up occasionally, but we don't get to see the full-blown issue of how bad it really is. And so the doctor comes in, and after time and time again talking with us, he finally helps us to see the real nature of our problem. He blows it up so that we see that there's only one solution, there's only one course of action, and we need to take it. And so that's what the law does. There's a, a saint called St. Saint Augustine, and he talks about um, the first time he understood the, he calls it the pervasity or the perverseness of sin. It's the first time I understood that. He said that when he was young, he grabbed a couple other youths, and he had a pear tree, but for whatever reason, they broke on, and they went onto someone else's property. And they found a pear tree that had all these pears, and they took almost every single one of them. And then they threw them all away. He said that we, we, didn't, we maybe ate a couple, but we really had no purpose in the fruit. You see, it wasn't the fruit. It was actually the act of iniquity that was what was pleasing. And he goes on, and he, he says this. He says, our real pleasure was simply in doing something that was not allowed. Anybody else have that? Like when you're a kid or when you're younger, you simply, the greatest pleasure is actually just doing what's not allowed. You say, you told me that? Well, all right, we'll see how that goes. And your simple rebellion is like, I'm not going to do what I was told because I don't have to do it. And so we just rebel against it. He says, our our real pleasure was simply in doing something that was not allowed. I had plenty of better pairs of my own. I only took these ones in order that I might be a thief. Once I had taken them, I threw them away. And all I tasted in them was my own iniquity which I enjoyed very much. He goes on, he says this, he says, In a perverse way, all men imitate you who put themselves far from you. What then was it that I loved in that theft of mine? In what way, awkwardly and perversely, did I imitate my Lord? Did I find it pleasant to break your law unpunished? And so producing a darkened shadow of your omnipotence. What a sight, a servant running from his master and following a shadow. Could I enjoy what was forbidden for no other reason except that it was forbidden? So what he's talking about here, he says, listen, there's a surface level and there's a deeper level of what sin is. Often we sin because we say, well, listen, I, I struggle with greed or I struggle with pride or I struggle with laziness or I, I struggle with you know jealousy, whatever else. We have these surface levels for why we struggle with sin. But you see what he's saying here is that at the root, the very root of what sin is, is that it is a desire to be God. And no other thing. There's no other excuse. There's no other motive that something comes, like a law comes, and we say, I am sovereign. I get to make decisions for my own life. I am a better God than you are. And so we reject God and our desire to play God. And he says this, this at the root is what sin is. This is the anatomy of sin, is it is our desire to rebel, simply to rebel. And it comes down to us from our forefather, Adam. And you see that that was what led him astray. So, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty six. it says this, it says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Do you see that it's, the law comes to provoke it, so we might realize what sin is, that we might realize our condition.
And then the last purpose of the law, the third purpose of the law, is that it condemns sin, right? So we see that law reveals sin, it provokes sin, and it finally it condemns sin. And he says, he says this in, um, in verse 9. He says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. And so he says the purpose of the law is that it, it's about justice, right? The law is about justice. If you break it, then you will pay the penalty for it. And so the law came to condemn sin. And do you see when we're operating by the law, you will constantly be feeling condemned. You will constantly be feeling condemned because you will never be good enough. And so you'll op- be operating time and time again and beating yourself up. And you'll see it in your life as you'll beat yourself up because you're never good enough. And that shows that we're operating underneath the law. So it, it reveals, provokes, and it condemns. Another part of this passage when he's defending the law is that he gives this kind of story. Paul kind of gives this story in the midst of it. And he says this. He says that in verse 9, he says, I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So he kind of gives a story. He says, there was a time where I was alive, right? Apart from the law. And this is kind of hard for us to make sense because when you actually think about that, you're like, okay, what does it mean that Paul was alive apart from the law? Because he was born a Jew and he had the law since he was a youth. So there was never really a time that Paul was apart from the law or that he was, you know, alive because he says that he was enslaved in sin from his birth, you know, from the time he was young. So what does he mean by that? I think that what he means is that there was a time where he felt spiritually inadequate. He felt like he was spiritually had it all together. There was a time where all of us at some at some ability thought we, you know, we have it all together. We're we're not bad or I'm a pretty good person. And we thought that we were alive in that sense. And Paul says that he was apart from the law, right? What does he mean that he was apart from the law? It means that he hadn't seen the full weight of what the law entailed, right? And, that, and that's, I think that part that's, that goes along with thinking that you're a good person. When you don't see all that the law entails, when you don't see what it really means to be good, what it really means to be holy, then you begin to think that you're a pretty good person. But the law came. He realized the weight of the law. And he says, when that happened, sin came alive and it killed him. He realized the death. He realized the sickness that was there. Do you see that this is all of our stories? When was it for you? When was it for you that you first realized your sinfulness? That you first realized that perhaps I'm not as good as I thought I was. Perhaps I need a savior. Because that's the story that's what Paul is saying, and I think every single one of us can relate to that. Every single one of us can say, there was a time where I thought these things. I thought I was alive. I thought I was pretty good. What was it that made you realize and wake up to your sin? What was it that provoked sin in you, and you saw it, and you realized your desperate need for Christ? Remember that. Remember that in and of ourselves, we aren't good. But in Christ, there's, no, there's a new possibility. So... We've covered a lot of ground, right? We've talked about our release from the law. We've talked about Paul's defense of the law, right? Paul says, listen, the law is not at fault. It's sin. Sin is what took the law and used it. Sin deceived me. Sin seized an opportunity. 
and it, it rose up to show itself sinful beyond measure. And so we see that the law is really good. Because here's the thing, if sin wasn't around, there would be no problem with the law. We would obey the law perfectly. When we die to go be in heaven, there's nothing going to be wrong with the law because we will be able to obey it perfectly because our nature is good. So the law is, is good, it is holy, it is righteous. It is our sinfulness that takes it and abuses it and misuses it. And so we see Paul defending the law. And then the last part is the weakness of the law, right? The weakness of the law. The law doesn't save or sanctify us, right? We aren't saved by our performance, and we're not made more like Christ by daily operating with God on a performance mindset. Because here's the thing, we... As Christians, I think we enter in first and we say, yes, I know I need, I know I need grace. I know I need Christ. And we experience that, that realization of unconditional love, that experience of grace. And we realize I can't change myself. I am, I need to continue to throw myself upon Christ. But then somewhere along the way, whether it's a couple months or whether it's a year or something happens in our life and we begin to trust in ourselves again, we begin to think that you know what will really change me? I just need to work harder at this. I just need to be more diligent about this. If only I could achieve these standards, then I would have it together. Then I would finally be approved. Rather than daily operating in this unconditional love relationship with God where we wake up and we realize his love for us and we realize that his spirit will guide us, right? Because, listen, change isn't opposed to effort. We need to put effort into change, but it's opposed to work, right? The effort that we put in is abiding. It is submitting to the Holy Spirit. It's being in tune with him and walking with him because the Holy Spirit changes our desires that we want to do what God has called us to do. And so as we become more in tune with the Holy Spirit, as we wake up and we're daily communicating with him, as we're daily seeing what pleases him and, and seeking to walk in unison, he's going to change our desires, He's going to change your desires, right? I mean, we've already seen the fruit of the Spirit. If you want to know how you're walking in unison with the Holy Spirit, think about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. These are the fruit of being in relationship with the Holy Spirit. These are what the Holy Spirit produce in us as we are in a relationship with Him. And so we are not saved nor sanctified by our performance. We are saved and sanctified by God's grace and by daily walking in tune with his spirit as he changes our inward desires to love him, to serve him, to be full of his presence. So the law is weak in the fact that it can't change us. It's not the medicine for our sickness. It simply shows us we have one. Now, I want to kind of end here um, with a, this passage. Um, towards the end, is probably one of the most debated passages um, in the scriptures. Of who is Paul talking about? Right? Because you start in verse 15, and he says this. He says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And he goes on, but he's talking about this inward battle. He's talking about this inward battle. And the big question is, who is this? Who is Paul talking about? Is Paul talking about an unbeliever here that's struggling 
Is Paul talking about perhaps an immature believer? You know, that, that wages war and has no victory and isn't able to, you know, and isn't able to do what God wants him to do. Is he talking about, there's some people that say that he's talking about an Old Testament believer. Someone because the Spirit's not really present here. You don't see a lot of the Spirit until you get to chapter 8. So some people say, well, it's an Old Testament believer because he delights in the law of God, but yet he still struggles with this sin. And then there's a fair amount of commentators that say, no, Paul's actually talking here about himself. Paul's talking about a mature Christian and their struggle with sin. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about all the nuances of that, but I want to come out and say, I think that it's a mature Christian. I think that, um, and there's a couple reasons, there's a couple reasons why. First one is that, um, let's see if I put these. Yeah, here we go. So the, the first one is that he switches from the past to the present. So in verses 13 through 14, he switches. He In the verses 13, like 7 through 13, he was talking about the past tense. I was dead. I was. And so he talks about, I, like, we were. And so he's using these past tense verbs. And then in verse 14, he starts talking about the present tense. I. Like, I am currently. An ongoing struggle. So he's talking about a present struggle that he's going through. Right? He says he was dead. Now he's talking about ongoing struggle. Another reason I think it's a believer is that he says he delights in the law of God. Right? He delights in the law of God. Listen, if you're not a Christian, you don't delight in the law of God. Like, he makes that clear in chapter 8 that the things of the Spirit are opposed to the things of the flesh. You know, that they are on opposite ends. And so if you're not a Christian, you don't delight in the law of God. And the last one is that he admits that he's a lost sinner. All throughout this, you see this great humility in saying, listen, like, I understand my sin. Now, a lost person doesn't go and say, like, listen, like, I really need Jesus. Like, I'm, I'm a really, you know, like, I'm lost. I don't, you know, I mean, like, that's the point where they become a Christian, you know, like, so if you admit, if you're at that point, it shows that he is a Christian. And honestly, just experientially, I think that this is true. I think that probably every single one of us, if we were honest, we can relate. And we would say, you know, if we got along, we would say, yeah, there are things that I can't stand that I do. It drives me crazy. Why can't I beat these things? Why can't I overcome them? Why can't? Why is it I find myself in the same rut time after time? Why, why does this happen? Right? And Paul talks about this. He talks about this. He talks about this deep, deep struggle that he has. I want us to learn. There's a couple of things that I, I want us to learn from this. A couple of things I think we can take. Um, the first one is that you aren't your sin. You aren't your sin. The Bible talks about that there is at war within us. There's an old man and a new man. And he says in here, he says, listen, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin that dwells in me. And so he's not abrogating responsibility, right? Because later on, we earlier we see that he takes responsibility for actions done in sin. So you can't read this and say, well, it's just sin in me, so I'm going to continue to sin and just blame it on sin. You know, that's, you can't read this, this, this chapter, this, these verses and then excuse your sin. That's not what Paul's doing. But what he is talking about here is he's talking about that there is an old man that is dying. That when Christ came in, that he created a new creation in you. And that new creation does not sin. That new creation is the one that is being made new. He's being renewed day by day while the old is passing away. And there will come a day, there will come a day at which that old man will die. He will be gone. We're going to talk about that in chapter 8, but I can't tell you, that's one of the, that's the blessed hope, right? That is, that is what we look forward to. One of the greatest 
One of the greatest things I look forward to in the resurrection is the fact that there won't be a war in my heart any longer. That we won't be trying to battle day in and day out to serve the one that we love. But it will simply be the the pure and, and unadulterated motive of our heart all the time to serve and to love God. But he says, listen, you are not defined by your sin in Christ. Your sin is no longer who you are, but instead you are a saint. You are God's child, and that is the truest part of who you are. And so you need to remember that. You need to remember that in times of sin, in times of struggle, that though you might be ongoingly struggling with the same thing, that that is not defining, that that is not who you are, that you are in Christ. And that is what defines you. That is who you are. Because you need that encouragement. You need to know your identity when you're struggling with that because only that will begin to liberate you. And you won't be operating under condemnation day in and day out. So, you aren't your sin. I think another really important thing that we need to learn from this is that no one is too advanced that they don't see their sin. There doesn't come a point in Christianity that you're like, hey, I'm sin-free. I've got this. I'm pretty good. Because I guarantee you, the moment that you start thinking that you're pretty good, the moment you are not able to see your sin is one of the scariest moments. That we're never going to outgrow or become perfect. That we are always going to have sin. And if you're not seeing sin, my guess is probably because you're not abiding close to holiness. You see, it's a natural byproduct. It doesn't, as Christians, we don't condemn ourselves. We don't beat ourselves up. We're not constantly throwing ourselves under the mat. But we're walking and we're abiding next to someone who is perfect. I don't know if you guys have ever been next to somebody that's really good at something that you're not at. Like, I mean, there are times where I've played sports where it's pretty obvious, like, this guy is going to go. I had a couple guys in, in high school that went to the pros. You know, they were professional football players, and, like, they were really good. And you're pretty clear, like, you're not on that caliber. <laughs> you know, like, you don't have to condemn yourself. Like, you just get on the field, and you're like, okay, like, it's pretty clear, you know? And it's just because you're around them. They didn't need to say anything. You didn't need to try to condemn yourself, but it's apparent that there are some things lacking in your repertoire that they have. And that's what it's like to be with God. Is that God's not constantly reminding you, but it's to be with God. You are to know your imperfections because you're dealing with someone who is perfect, who is holy, who is unapproachable in many ways except for Christ. And so we don't ever get in a place where we're not able to see our sin. If we are, then we are not abiding next to holiness. We are not abiding next to Christ. And then another one is that um, no one's going to get to advance that they don't struggle with sin. Listen, you're going to struggle with sin. It's how are you struggling with it? How are you struggling with it? Because it's not a matter of if you're going to or how you're, it's like, it's how are you processing it? What are you doing? Right? And he says, listen, I haven't given up. He talks about this ongoing war. He says, I hate it. I hate it with everything in me. I can't stand it. I wage war against this. He says, I delight in God in my inner being. Who I really am delights in God, and I hate sin. And so how we as Christians war against sin is that we hate it. We confess it, and we repent of it. We, we are constantly a people of confession and repentance. And so I can't tell you, listen, God is about making you into that kind of character. And so do you confess and repent of sin? Because if you if you're not like if you don't have a process where you're really confessing sin to someone and you're actually walking in repentance, then you're missing out on what God is actually doing. God is bringing about and revealing your sin that you might walk through that. Because guess what? It's not going to go away. 
the problem that you're struggling with right now, it might change and the Lord might give you victory and freedom from that. But there's going to be another one that pops up because we have a sinful nature. And so God is building us a character for how we deal with sin rather than simply avoiding it. So how is it that you process your struggles? How is it you process through sin? Do you walk through it in that confession and repentance? The last thing I want to kind of wrap up with is that he talks about two cries of the Christian heart. In in verse 24 and 25, if you guys would look there with me, um, this really sunk in and really was just encouraging to my heart. As he says it, and it's really practical. This is really practical. He says that there are two cries that issues from a Christian's heart when they're going through these struggles, when they're struggling with sin. And these are the two cries. The first one is, wretched man that I am. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Cry number one. Cry number two. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so do you see that the two cries of the Christian's heart, that there is one cry that is is mournful, that is sorrowful, that is hating sin, that our heart cries that. And that there's another cry of our heart that says, but thanks be to God, that is filled with love and joy and thankfulness because of God's love for us. And that was one of the things that moved me. We had our, our youth stockholders dinner. Some of you were there. We had our youth stockholders dinner um, several weeks back. And it it just it melted my heart to see we had several of our youth come up and whether they knew exactly what they were explaining or not, one of the beautiful things was that, that I knew the gospel was penetrating their heart. Why? Because there were several of them that came up and talked about that I didn't know why, but I experienced this deep sadness. But yet, I also felt this great joy and love. And for me, the only the gospel produces those simultaneously. Only the gospel produces those two cries that come from our heart. And I can tell you, if you don't have those two cries, then there's something about the gospel that you're not understanding. And this is very practical for counseling people. Because listen, when you have someone that's struggling with sin, the tendency is either to beat themselves up so that they they beat themselves up, they whip themselves, they make themselves feel horrible, and they think that that's penance. right? And there's never any joy or any thankfulness or any love. Or you have people that don't even mourn their sin at all. They move, like, and they just skip the whole mourning part, and they go, well, I'm, I'm forgiven, I'm loved, and they kind of go around like nothing happened. And what this passage says is that you can't do either of those. It's both. That as Christians, we hate sin and we mourn it. And as we are hating our sin, as we are mourning it, as we are sorrowful for it, it moves us into reflecting the thinking of the great love and the great joy that we have because of Christ and his death for us. Tim, Tim Keller has a quote that has really stuck with me, and I think it's worth memorizing. But it says this. It says that we are more sinful, we are more sinful than we ever could have imagined. We are more sinful than we ever could have imagined. But we are more loved than we ever dared hope. We are more loved than we ever dared hope. And so realizing that I am no better than anyone, I am my own biggest enemy, and I should deeply mourn the pain that my sin has caused my Savior and it causes others. But yet it doesn't crush me. Yet it doesn't condemn me. Because I am loved in Christ and I could have ever imagined that he would see the deepest, darkest and he would purchase me and he would love me and he would say, I'm not going anywhere. I will change you. Our hope is this. He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. 
He who began a good work in you, he will finish what he started. Let us pray. Jesus, thank you so much that you are faithful even when we're not. Thank you that you give us the power and the energy to struggle through sin. Thank you that you've given us community, God, that you've given us one another, that we are not intending to struggle alone, but instead we are meant to lean upon one another in a mode of grace, or in a mode of love, in a mode of thankfulness. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit, that you would, you would come, that you would fall, that you would fill us, and that, that you would use the gospel to pierce our hearts and to change us to be more like your son, Jesus. We love you, Father. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.